People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And we've got a great treat for today. We have joining us over the line from the UK, Diane Setterfield, the author of three books. Welcome to our studio, Diane. Thank you so much for inviting me. Diane is the author of The Thirteenth Tale that was published in 2006, and it was a New York Times number one bestseller, and it was also adapted for TV. In 2013, she had her second book, Bellman and Black, published, which I like to think of as a very gothic and dark Selfridges. And her third book, Once Upon a River, has just been released it is a wonderful book. It's magical. It's received wonderful reviews in the UK, and hopefully it will follow suit here in South Africa. Diane, it's such a great pleasure for us to have you joining us. I've introduced, I've introduced you according to the CV, but I'm going to ask you the first question that I ask all my interviewees, and this is where you get to add the human dimension to yourself as an author. Can you introduce yourself in your own words and on your own terms? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm one of those writers who's really at heart a reader. And so, and so for me, my writing is, has sprung very naturally and directly out of my life as a passionate reader. So I'm always on the side of the reader and I'm always thinking about the reader when I'm writing. And the most important thing that I can do is to write books that will be the reader's friend. And I know how important reading has been to me at times in my life when I've been lonely or when I've been heartbroken or when life's been tough and then one of the best things you can do is find a book that will entertain you and divert you and take you away from your own thoughts and give you a little bit of a break and when you finished reading the book you've often moved on in your head you've moved on in your mind and you come back to your life and you've learned something, and you're slightly different. And so the problems that you have, you see them in a new way, and maybe you can see a way forward you couldn't see before. And I think that when I'm writing, what I'm doing, what I think I most want to achieve is just to be able to do that thing for other people because I've benefited from it so much myself. This is Diane Setterfield, in her own words, the power of reading. And it's actually interesting to, to note that you have an academic background, you've studied French literature, you have a PhD, you've been a teacher, and now you are a full-time writer. But this love for reading has basically been, it is the trajectory of your life, you know, from an academic background, yeah, now into right. books. And it's Yes, and I think it's the reading that is the common thread through what I did before because I didn't start writing until I was well into my 30s. I'd been a teacher for years before I was a writer, but I taught literature, and so I was very close to hundreds 
on maybe even maybe even thousands of students who were also all reading and we read the books together we discussed the books together and so when I'm writing I'm able to think not just about myself as a reader but all the other readers that I have met and when you are a teacher you see that if you read a scene together and there are 20 people in a classroom each person responds slightly differently to each scene and to each character and to each book and when you are the teacher you get to understand what drives these these different responses so when I'm creating a scene I can have it in the back of my mind that I can be following the scene I've created not just not just as if I am the reader but I can bring all these different reading approaches to what I'm doing and make sure that my book is going to work for lots of different readers who've got lots of different backgrounds, different histories, different personal circumstances. And so my teaching experience has been incredibly valuable to me as a writer. Sounds like you're never alone when you write. You've got all these other people around you busy almost <laughs> whispering ideas into your, into, into your ears. The, the book Once Upon a River, I thoroughly, I can't say enjoyed because it was much more intense than just enjoyment. It, it really took over my reading hours with an intensity. I, I, it became so evocative and it's so atmospheric and there's so many different threads come and, you know, narrative tri- tri- tributaries that converge in this book. You, we speaking with the author. So instead of me giving a little bit of a, of an, of a synopsis of the story, can you lay that for our listeners? Yeah. Well, I can tell you, I, I think the best thing is to, just talk about the way the story begins and the place is very important there's a riverside inn and it's in a somewhat isolated spot on the banks of a river near an ancient bridge and the story begins late on winter solstice night so it's cold and it's dark the river is running high and it's and is running cold and as It's in no ordinary inn. This is a special place. It's where the locals gather to drink and tell stories because this is well before the era of TV and sports in pubs and it's before the days of everybody sitting with a drink and their phone. So it's a community and they are telling stories. One winter solstice night when the door opens and a stranger walks in, he is injured he is, he is drenched in river water and in his arms he's carrying the corpse of a small child. So immediately there is a story that seems to be taking place right under the eyes of the regular drinkers in this inn. And these events seem dramatic enough but an hour later the child that is plainly displaying all the signs of being drowned. An hour later, the child comes to life. So the first mystery of the book is how can a child who's dead come back to life? 
and the second mystery of the book is who is this child and who does she belong to because three local families are grieving and three local families have lost a child and she can't belong to all of them so that is that is the opening of the book and the mystery that provides the momentum for the rest of the story as this little community has to try to understand and make sense of this dramatic and actually they they think impossible thing that has happened and they can't they can't say it didn't happen because these are the people who were there they witnessed it they witnessed the miracle and how can they make sense of that we are in conversation with Diane Setterfield, the author of The Thirteenth Tale, Bellman and Black, and published right now, Once Upon a River. We'll be back with more conversation straight after this ad break. Choose high. High FM. Classical, rock, jazz. But then me being connected to Hashem, connected to Judaism, I had a special language that I could speak. Language that I got as a present, I think, from those years in high school. Yonatan Rizel is back for Sinai Encore. Book now at sinaiandarba.co.za or at Pumpy Ticket for Cape Town on the 24th of Feb, Johannesburg on the 2nd and 3rd of March. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're in conversation with Diane Setterfield, international best-selling author, and her new book, Once Upon a River, is the topic of our conversation. Diane, there is so Once Upon a River is as much a story as it is about storytelling. Mm. How do you approach storytelling? What do you see your role as the storyteller as? And why are stories so important? Well, human beings are, in my view, hardwired for story. Story is something that we all, we all thrive on. And I think if you look at small children and the way they spend their time, when they're not sleeping, 90% of their time is engaged in building fantasy alternate realities. That's what play is. And you have to ask yourself, even a scientist must ask themselves, what is, what is fiction for? Because if a species is devoting so much learning time to the creation of alternative realities amongst its young, it must be necessary because it's not evolutionary likely that, that that would happen if there were not some benefit to be gained from it. And if you start to ask yourself what those benefits might be, then I think you start to see how storytelling becomes very fundamental to humanity. If you understand enough about stories, then I think you start to be able to look at the reality of the world around you and understand uh, that one thing will likely lead to another thing. You start to be able to look into the future and predict if that has happened today, 
then this other thing might happen tomorrow. And then instead of being, instead of human life being a kind of an overwhelming flood of random events, we start to be able to pick out structure in it. And then we can make the most of opportunities that are likely to come our way. We can prepare ourselves for dangers that might be coming. So I think it's, you can see why story and structure become so important. And then we practice them so much in our lives. Even when the days of playing games are finished, we still continue to have this fascination with an addiction to story. We ask each other, oh, you know, what did your, what did your neighbor do? Did she, did she, that boyfriend or did she get rid of him? Every time we gossip, we are, we are looking for story. And every time we ask our children, what did you do at school today? We're encouraging them to build a little story about their life. And in so many ways, this idea of storytelling becomes part of the novel Once Upon a River because it also is about storytelling. Yes, yes. So in my book, what I'm writing about is an extraordinary event that seems miraculous, that has, if you like, it has broken the world view that these people have. They're ordinary people. They work on the river. They're, they are crest farmers. They are gravel diggers. They're not educated people for the most part. But something has happened. A child who was dead has come back to life. It shouldn't happen. It's supposed to be impossible, but they witnessed it. And they need to find a way of making sense of it. They need to make the world an ordered and coherent place again after it has been cracked by this supposedly impossible event. And what is the tool that they use to try and mend the world? They use storytelling. And in the 19th century, what's so fascinating is that there are so many types of story available. Christianity is going strong. That has great stories about people being dead and then being alive. But there's also belief still in witchcraft. There is superstition. There is mythology. There is fairy tale and folk tale. And then for some of the other characters who've had more, more education and who have had more contact with city life, the life of ideas, there is science and the new science of the 19th century, the very beginning of psychology and Darwin's theories of evolution have brought new ways of understanding the world, new narratives of what human beings are. And so by, so by placing my story in the 19th century and at a point on the river which is connected to cities and ideas but also on the edge of a much older world of witchcraft and folklore and fairy tale and superstition, I've been able to draw together all the different ways people might use this old knowledge and new knowledge in order to try to understand what's been happening 
on their very doorstep, in their very inn. The way that you describe all these different strands and possible ways of interpreting the world through different narratives is very similar to a passage in the book where you talk about the river itself and all the tributaries building, uh, leading into the river and how story mm. is constructed in a similar way. And that leads me to the next question, that the River Thames and the local myths that these river folk tell about the river become very important aspects of the novel. Now, you live in Oxford, close to the Thames, and you obviously have, a, you have a very strong relationship with the river. And I think that's an important thing that we need to speak about in order to understand some of the some of the the foundations of Once Upon a River? Well, it's very curious, but when I began writing the novel, I didn't live near the Thames. I'd merely taken a holiday there. When I, years ago, when I, at the end of the publicity tour that followed the publication of The Thirteenth Tale, I was, um, I'd come back from, a global tour, visiting so many countries. It was about 15 months, and I was never at home for more than 10 days or two weeks at a time. I was always traveling, and it was very exciting. Bookshops, readers, lovely hotels, far too many airports. And when I got home, I needed to... I needed my brain to slow down. I needed a quiet life. I needed some rest and a holiday. And to feel my feet on the ground again after so much time in the air. And so I took a train and I got off the train in Gloucestershire at a small place called Kemble. And I walked across a field to a very, a very ordinary, a very not picturesque, not beautiful little bit of land. There was uh, an ash tree growing and from between the roots of the ash tree was a dry furrow in the ground. That is the source of the Thames. And from there, I walked to London, which is about 200 miles, and it took me about two weeks. So I passed through all the places that I mentioned in my novel, and it was while I was on that walk that I had the first inkling that, I would one day write about the river. Well, it took years to get to the point where I was ready to start writing that book. Um, And somehow in those years, I've moved house more than once. And each time I got closer and closer to the river, the more I wrote, the closer I needed to be. And now I live one minute from the River Thames. So I think that this writing this book has had a huge impact on me, and I've been so drawn to the river. I walk there every day, and when I have a writing problem in my mind, my number one way of managing writing stress or trying to find a solution to a writing problem is to go for a walk, take my problem to the river, walk along the river for an hour or an hour and a half, and you come back and... Just that walk, just that connection with that vast body of moving water seems to shift your thoughts along and frees up your mind. So I found it to be, as well as, as well as providing 
so many ideas that I put into Once Upon a River, it has become part of my writing toolkit, my problem-solving kit. And walking by the river now, to me, is, is an everyday part of my writing process. You make me want to walk the Thames as well. This is such an interesting, <laughs> such an interesting story of the relationship that you've had with the river and how most probably once upon a river is part of the, the fruits of that relationship. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Very much so. And it is just, it's also just a very beautiful part of the country. You get to see, you get to see your own country. This is what I have found. I've got to understand my own country differently because we spend so much time in cars and you spend so much time on trains, but to walk right through a city by following the river, you see it so differently and you understand it so differently, not just the landscape, but the people and all the activity that takes place on the the side of a river. And the part of the river that I describe in Once Upon a River is actually relatively unchanged. If you walk through the Oxford and the London of the modern day compared to the 19th century, you know, it would be hard to recognize that it's the same place. But walk that part of the river, Radcott, Buscott, Kelmscott, those little villages, and really what you are seeing is pretty much just the same as the characters in my in my novel would have seen in their everyday lives. We are, in con- unchanged. We, we are in conversation with Diane Setterfield, the author of, among other books, The Thirteenth Tale and now just published, Once Upon a River. We'll be back to focus on the characters in the novel straight after this break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. It's a great privilege to have joining us over the line from London, from England, Diane Setterfield, the author of Once Upon a River. I'd like to focus now on some of the characters in your book. Each of them is so well drawn that as a reader, I felt that I really got to know them. And there's such a rich variety of characters. They're the good, and then there's the bad. They're those who are suffering, and those who are suffering even more. There's the white, and then there's a the black, and then there's people of high society, and then there's people who work on the river. You've really got a cross-section of 19, uh, 19th century uh, Britain in the book. There's educated and there's less educated. You can choose a few of them to introduce to our listeners so that when they go and they get the book, they'll just be reacquainting themselves with some of these wonderful characters. Oh, thank you so much for what you've said about the characters. I think I think that the characters really matter. I think they are the heart of a book. And so I one of the reasons why it takes me a long time to write a book. I can't write a book a year the way some authors do. I can't even write a book every two years. And it's usually because I need the time to really let my characters grow. So when I hear somebody like you tell me how much they've enjoyed meeting my characters and how they've 
been able to really appreciate the the um the diversity of them then that's um then then i'm I'm really grateful and I feel that my work has paid off so thank you uh one of one of the characters who is who is a favorite of mine is Rita and Rita is the local nurse and midwife and it's when you're writing a historical novel and you have female characters, you have to be so careful because it's the truth is that in Victorian England there were a great many more constraints on female independence than there are today. And yet when you're writing a novel, you need to write characters who your modern day reader will appreciate and feel a connection with and you also need characters who can be active so I had to be very careful in imagining the backstory to Rita to make her credible as a 19th century woman but also to make her as independent as I could and my way of doing that was to make her an, an orphan who had been raised in a convent and because the convent had a hospital, which was quite standard, she had benefited from a really rather excellent uh, medical education. So she is the nurse and midwife locally, and she is my representative in the novel of the scientific mind. She's also a very, very intelligent woman, and of course that doesn't hurt whatever age, <coughs> excuse me, whatever age you're born in. So she's one of my favorites, and she's also maintained her independence by remaining single. And she's able to do that because she has a job and she can work. So she's seen enough of childbirth to know just how dangerous it is. And she has a second reason for wanting to avoid marriage and men, and that is in order to save herself from what she knows with good experience of the dangers of childbirth. And she has a long journey to go on in this book uh, because she's called upon to reassess her feelings about childbirth through the course of the novel. But there are, um, there are lots of other characters in the book who, are, who, who really stole my heart. And I think the key one there is Mr. Armstrong, the farmer, now, when I began, I knew very little about Mr. Armstrong, except that I wanted to paint the portrait of a good man. And there are some villains in my novel, and I think it's very important to address the other side of masculinity. I've been, I was raised by a great dad and a great grandfather, and I wanted to find a way of paying tribute to those men who are so good to their families. And there was something my grandfather had always done that I really valued and, and found out more about as after he died. My grandfather was unusual of his generation. He always used to say at mealtimes, I'd rather starve than see these children go without. And unlike so many of his contemporaries, he always insisted that the little ones were fed first and he would have what was left. And that was rare. 
And after he died, I learned from other members of the family how hungry he had been growing up and how brutal and selfish his father was. And I wanted to pay tribute to this great generosity and sympathy that he always had for people, those who were smaller and um, more vulnerable than himself. So I gave that to Mr. Armstrong and built Mr. Armstrong from that one little element, I'd rather starve than see these little ones go without. And yet there was so much that surprised me about Mr. Armstrong because in many ways he's nothing like my grandfather. My grandfather was a gravel digger and Mr. Armstrong is quite a well-off farmer. But he, like my grandfather, he had a difficult childhood. But it couldn't have been difficult it couldn't have been in a more different way. Where my grandfather suffered because he was poor, Mr. Armstrong suffers because he's mixed race. And his father was a wealthy Englishman, but his mother was a black servant. And so what that means is that although his father was a good enough man to put a lot of money into looking after him and educating him. He's, in fact, one of the better educated people in the in the community. Yet, he never really knew family life. And this is why he loves his children so much. And he will not, he cannot bear to see a child suffer. And that's the source of his great goodness, the fact that he grew up in what you might term sort of well-heeled, neglect there was plenty of money but there wasn't enough love and so he he devotes himself to the love of family and the love of people who are more vulnerable than he is so they are they are two of my two of my favorite characters in the book i finished the book a while ago but you've pulled up so many memories just with you know rita and with mr armstrong from from my recollection of the book and it's, it's all of a sudden these people are fresh in my mind and I have to say that <laughs> it's true that is also true for the 13th tale and Bellman and Black while I was mm. preparing for this for this interview I was just casting my mind back and the 13th tale is already it's, it's, it's 13 years for 13 years since it was published and there were certain mm. scenes in that book that are fresh in my mind and Bellman and Black which is now six years old it's six years since it was published there are some scenes in that book that also just came flooding back into my mind this was all last night when I was preparing uh, there is this ability that you have to create such strong impressions on the page that the memories live for for years after the last page has been turned. We we don't have much time. Well, you've made you've made me very happy by telling me that because that's that's just that's just what I want to do. I I there are books I remember reading when I was. 12, 13, 14, and the most vivid books you read, they stay with you for a lifetime. And so um, so for you to tell me that my books have had uh, a long-lasting impression on you has, has, um, has made me very happy. Thank you. 
uh, it's my pleasure because you've brought me a lot of reading joy. What does <laughs> Diane Setterfield read when she's not walking the Thames or writing? I read quite broadly. When I was younger, I used to read only fiction. The older I get, the more fascinated I am to read non-fiction. I also have returned in recent times to reading children's fiction again. I think there are so many wonderful children's writers around. And I used to think that only children should read children's books. And now I've realized that that some of the very best writers are writing for children. And I think I know why. Because when children read, they come without the same amount of baggage and expectation that adult readers bring. And therefore, it frees the author to be so bold because children don't come with preconceptions. So I've been very interested to read authors like David Almond and uh, Philip Pullman and really, really relish what they've been doing. So that has been great. But I think my old favourites, my classic favourites, and an author I return to over and over again from the 19th century would be Wilkie Collins. And I can remember the first Wilkie Collins I ever read. It was a book my sister brought home from school. And she, uh, she brought the book home from school and started reading it. And I could tell from watching her, it was like she was, it was as if she was a zombie. She was present in physically, and yet I could tell her mind was, was in another place, another time entirely. And I was so desperate to get that book from her. But, and so I thought when my mum calls her down, calls us to tea, I will get, grab the book then because I was older than her, so I felt I should have it first, you see. And um, and she, but when my mum called us down, my sister was too clever, and she took the book down with her and sat on it all through the meal, so I couldn't get it. And in fact, I couldn't get it till the Sunday. So she read it all day Saturday. I didn't get it till Sunday morning, and when I did, it was The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. And... I was completely smitten by these powerful characters, the villains who were so bad, but they were excitingly bad, and the heroes and heroines that you desperately wanted everything to come out well for them. The tension, the suspense, the storytelling was quite extraordinary. And I was as lost in the book as my sister had been. And then soon after that, I got hold of um, I got hold of his other books, The Moonstone, and was one. And I read and read and read. I think he is an author I will always go back to. And the last question: Are you working on anything at the moment, or is the the need for publicising the book taking up all your time? Well, I had some time sometime last year before I was needed to do so much promotional work. So I made a good start on draft one of a new book um, last year, but I'm nearly halfway through. 
So when the publicity drive for Once Upon a River starts to die down, I'll have more time and I will be able to go back and complete draft one of the new book. Um, I'm a writer who needs to do lots of rewriting. Um, I like I like things to be just just right, and I want my reader to be very happy with their experience of what they read. So I I don't hand it over until I'm sure it's ready. Um, so there's a long way. We are in conversation with Diane Setterfield, the author of the thirteenth tale. Bellman and Black, and now her latest book, which has just been published in the UK and here in South Africa, Once Upon a River. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for writing these books because you really have added to definitely mine and hopefully a growing number of our listeners reading pleasure with hopefully Once Upon a River. But I'm sure a lot of our listeners will recall the 13th tale because it did make a huge impact on the reading public when it was published. We're looking forward to interviewing you in the near future when your fourth book is published. Hopefully it'll have some gothic darkness to it <laughs> to keep us uh, spellbound at the edge of our seats. Okay. I've enjoyed it so much today. I shall look for time.